Our scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, we, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we all ought not to think that the divine is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed, and, this, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Um, the words of the scripture, we thank you for the words of the song that, that Brooks sang, Lord, and the reminder uh, that it was to all of us about how much we so desperately need you. Even for the next breath that we draw in as we're sitting here, Lord, we are utterly dependent upon you uh, for even the very most simplest things of life. So, Father, we pray that we would recognize uh, your greatness, that we would recognize your faithfulness to us. But Father, we also want to recognize just how much we need you, and we need to hear your voice. So Father, I pray that as we counter you in worship, as we encounter you uh, in your word here this morning, we pray that we would hear your voice. And we lift all this up in Christ's name. Amen. You often hear uh, when you come to City Church, uh, two of the convictions that caused us to want to start City Church so many years ago. 
And one of the convictions uh, had to do with our context. And that is that when we knew we wanted to plant a church, we knew that we wanted to plant it in the city. Because one of the things that we believed, one of the things we were most convicted of is that cities offer tremendous opportunities to not just impact lives and impact neighborhoods, but also opportunities to impact cultural environments that, that end up shaping an entire region. Sociologists for a long time have talked about how uh, ideas and trends often start in cities and then they spread out from cities into the greater culture. And that's because cities become this kind of microcosm for both the best and the worst of humanity and it creates culture that then spreads out uh, all throughout the region. And it's for that reason that we've looked at the book of Acts. Because when you look at the book of Acts, especially the second half of the book of Acts, you see that Jesus' followers were passionate about spreading the message of the gospel from city to city all throughout the ancient world. Paul, who we read about this morning, in particular was passionate about cities. In fact, you read about how his main goal was to take the message of the gospel to the city of Rome, which was the most influential city in the ancient world. But as he traveled trying to get to Rome, he visited all sorts of different cities. He visited the city of Jerusalem and the the city of Philippi. And as you read all throughout the second book of Acts, you see that he, he preaches this same message of the gospel but it it carries different narratives in each one of the cities that Paul went to. It speaks in different ways in different cultural and urban narratives. This morning we're going to look about at a few things that the gospel has to say to the city of Athens. And I think what we'll find out in the process that it has incredible implications even today for the way you and I think about life and for the way we think about the gospel. Three things I want us to see this morning, and the first is the ignorance and hollowness of unknown idols. Let me say that again. The ignorance and hollowness of unknown idols. See, when our passage opens up, we find Paul in the city of Athens. Athens was a a very well-known ancient city, and it was best known for being uh, one of the centers for uh, the intellectual and cultural aspects of the ancient world. It was very popular politically in uh, the 4th century BC, but by the time Paul reaches there, in probably around 60 AD, its political influence had waned. But it still was attracting Uh, the intellectuals and the culture seekers, really, of the ancient world. You see, Athens was the home to four major philosophical schools, two of which are mentioned in our passage, the, the Epicurean school and the Stoic school. It was known to be uh, the home of all the greatest philosophers that you and I studied in school all those years ago. Plato uh, was a philosopher in Athens, Socrates, Aristotle, all these people that we've studied that, that shaped philosophy, that even shapes the things that we study today. Even the ways you and I think today have been shaped by many 
of the philosophers that came out of this city of Athens. It defines the way you and I think even today. In short, if you wanted to shape culture and the academic world in the ancient world, then you would go to the city of Athens. And it is the city in which Paul finds himself in our narrative. Jane Jacobs, who was an urbanist in the 1960s, said this. She said, you need to walk a city's streets in order to see its soul. Our passage opens up by telling us about Paul walking the streets of Athens. And as he walked the streets of Athens, he became overcome in his spirit by all of the idols that he saw all throughout the city of Athens. One ancient historian said that you had a better chance of finding a god in Athens than you did a man. And the reason they said that is because all over the city of of Athens were idols, idols of gold, idols of silver, idols made of stones, idols committed to all sorts of ancient deities. They were everywhere. If you remember from your history class or your geography class, Athens was the home to the Parthenon. This, I think it was one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world, this huge temple to the god of Athena that stood on a hill that overlooked the entire city of Athens. Our passage tells us that as Paul was walking through this city and observing all these different idols everywhere, our passage said that he was overcome. It was like he was about to burst. His spirit was provoked inside of him. He had to respond to all the things that he was seeing. Now, all this talk about idols might might seem to be somewhat archaic to you now. You know, we don't fashion idols that exist in our homes. We don't go home and, and bow down to idols like they did in the ancient culture. But really, this passage has more to do with us than we may originally think and when we may begin to start reading it. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters said that the safest road to hell is the gradual one. It's the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without side sign points. And what he was saying was that the safest road to destruction often is the subtle and gradual road that is in front of us. Now, you and I may not give ourselves to worshiping little idols in our homes like they did in Athens, but we do give ourselves away in worship every single day. You see, one of the things that Scripture is really clear about is that you and I were created to be worshiping beings. We were created to worship God. And when our relationship with God became disjointed, when it became dysfunctional, we had to worship something and we began to worship other things. Worship isn't just something that we do on a Sunday morning where we sing. Worship is at the very essence of our being. Worship is giving our ultimate affection and allegiance to something in such a way that that thing begins to actually control and rule us as human beings. But our idols today are much more subtle 
than they were in Paul's day. Yet even though they're subtle, they can still control us and they will eventually lead to our destruction and hurt all of those people that are around us. I think one of the best uh, instances of idolatry that I've probably ever seen in popular culture was from uh, the great spiritual classic movie that was made in the 1980s called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Maybe you've seen this movie before. In Ferris Bueller's Day Off, there's a character in the movie named Cameron. He's Ferris's best friend. And Cameron, sadly, is a very easily influenced young man. And Ferris had learned to control him. So when they choose to skip school one day, Ferris goes over to Cameron's house, and they want to go on their adventures all throughout the city, but they need to get around. So what does Ferris do? He convinces his good friend Cameron to borrow his father's uh, brand new sports car. And of course, they, they take this sports car, they, they drive it all around town, they go on all their adventures, and then when they get home, they realize that they need to hide what they've done. So they put this sports car up on blocks and they put it in reverse, trying to reverse back the mileage, thinking that would somehow change the mileage on the car. But in the process, what happens? The car falls off the blocks, crashes, and, in, and is destroyed. And Cameron is in a panic. Why is he in a panic? He's in a panic because he knows that his father's most precious prized possession is this red sports car. It's a really funny scene in the movie, but it says something really profound to us. Because what it tells us is that Cameron knew the pecking order. He knew that his father's ultimate allegiance was to that sports car, and that that sports car was even more valuable than his relationship with his son. You see, that is the nature of idolatry. It captures us, and it is inherently destructive because it distorts our very values as human beings. Our culture is full of idols like this. Idols that are possessions, idols of success, of popularity, of fame, of notoriety. It can be all sorts of things. But really, there is one thing that stands behind all of our idol worship. There's one thing that is underlying all the idol worship that you and I tend to engage in day in and day out. And that is the ultimate tendency to worship ourselves over God. Many of you know that uh, I teach a course here at the university called uh, Contemporary Spirituality, and it's an interesting course that, that I teach here, and uh, it really provides a great forum for us to have all sorts of discussions about religion and spirituality and Christianity. It really is interesting. But the thing that I've run into most uh, teaching this class here at the university all these years is this phrase. I have more students say this to me than anything else. They say to me, I consider myself to be a spiritual person, but no longer a religious person. I consider myself to, to be a very spiritual person on the inside, but I have walked away from religion as a whole. 
this has become the most widely popular concept that we run into, into our culture today, whenever we talk about religion or about spirituality. But the reality is what lies behind those phrases is the very same thing that Paul confronted on the streets of Athens. Because what lies behind it is our desire to be our own gods. We want to pick and choose what we want to believe. We want to craft a morality that works for us. We want to be our own judge and jury and no one else's Uh, No one else's pattern or no one else's religion really works for me, so I will instead make my very own. In reality, our culture is no different than the Athenians in the ancient world. When Paul walked the, the streets of Athens, he was overcome in his spirit by what he saw. And he found one particular idol that he especially wanted to talk to the Athenians about. He said he encountered one idol that said, to the unknown God. So Paul, seeing this idol, begins to engage in all sorts of conversation with everyone else in Athens saying, I want to tell you about a God who is known. And when when Paul talks about this God who is known, he wants to introduce two very important things about this God who is known. The first thing he introduces them to this God who is known is he tells them that this God is a God of justice. He says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. You see, throughout all history, God has continued to reveal himself. He's continued to make himself known to all sorts of people. But the scriptures tell us that the most powerful way God has made himself known is through the person of Jesus Christ. And one of the things we believe the scriptures teach about Jesus is that he was God who took on skin and dwelt among us. Colossians tells us, that Jesus Christ was the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of God for us. He was God made known to us in a very powerful and tangible way. But one of the things that Jesus consistently spoke about when he was here was that there was a judgment that was coming. That there is a time when accounts will be settled and God will act in his perfect justice. This will be a time where each and every one of us will have to give an account about how our lives were lived. Whether our lives were lived in obedience to God's will or whether they were lived in rebellion to God. Now, we really like this idea of God coming and judging. We like the idea of God being just when we think about it, about all those people outside of us. We like to think about God as a God of justice when we observe the injustice that exists in the world. When people have wronged us and and hurt us, we get really excited about God judging those sorts of people. But when it comes to God judging us personally, we then become very uncomfortable with it. 
So we just choose not to believe it anymore. Instead, we fashion a God who approves of what we do. We fashion a morality and a spirituality to sanction whatever behavior we want to go with in our lives. Imagine this for a second. Imagine you were called into traffic court one day. Of course, all of us are perfect drivers, so it will never happen to us. So just imagine someone else that may be called into traffic court. But imagine that person is called into traffic court and the judge begins to interact with them about why they had some sort of traffic violation. And they looked up at the judge and they said, well, judge, in that moment, the rules didn't really work for me. So I just decided to do my own thing. I decided to live by my own traffic rules in that situation. I created my own traffic laws and I was very true to them. I was very sincere to those traffic laws. Now, what would the judge say in that instance? He would probably look at us and say, well, that's very nice, but you're still receiving judgment for the laws that you broke. See, what Paul is saying to the Athenians is that they can make all sorts of gods. They can make as many gods as they want to. You and I can fashion our own gods. We can fashion our own morality and spirituality. But what Paul is saying is that a day is coming where you and I will stand before the one true God of justice and we will be held accountable. And when that day comes, all our idols, all our cleverly fashioned spirituality will be inadequate to save us in that moment. Our idol worship will ultimately condemn us it will ultimately devour us when we stand before the true God in judgment. Henry Nowen, who's a, a popular author, wrote this. He retold a, a tale from ancient India that talked about four royal brothers. And these royal brothers decided each to master their own special ability and he writes, as time went by and the brothers met to reveal what they had learned. I have mastered a science, said the first, by which I can take but a bone of some creature and create the flesh that goes with it. I, said the second, know how to grow that creature's skin and hair if there is flesh on its bones. The third said, I'm able to create its limbs if I have flesh, the skin and the hair. And I, concluded the fourth, know how to give life to that creature if its form is complete. Thereupon, the brothers went into the jungle to find a bone so they could demonstrate their specialties. As, face, as fate would have it, the bone that found was a lion's. One added flesh to the bone, the second grew hide and hair, the third completed it with matching limbs, and the fourth gave the lion life. Shaking its mane, the ferocious beast arose and jumped on its creator's. He killed them all and vanished contentedly into the jungle. And then Nowen writes this. He says, we too have the capacity to create what can devour us. Goals and dreams can consume us. Possessions and properties can turn and destroy us unless we seek first God and his kingdom and his righteousness 
and allow him to breathe into life what we make of it. You see, this known God that Paul was introducing to the Athenians to was a God of justice. But he tells them that there is one other aspect that is important for them to know about this known God. He tells them that there is a known God who has died and who has resurrected. He says this in verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, Paul just didn't want to introduce them to a God of justice. But he also wanted to introduce them to that same God who is a God of mercy. See, the way to receive mercy and not justice in this life is through a right relationship with the one who was died and resurrected. The scriptures tell us that on the cross, when Jesus was suffering and dying, he suffered through the just judgment of God so that you and I could be recipients of the mercy of God. The good news of the gospel tells us that when we, by faith, receive that mercy, we no longer need to fear the judgment of God. In fact, Romans 8, chapter 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the one true God that Paul was speaking about. He is a God of justice. And he is a God of mercy. He is the one true and only God who can save our souls. David Mills uh, recently wrote um, an article in uh, the journal called First Things. And one of the things he talked about in the article is this idea of idolatry and modern spirituality that you and I uh, traffic in day in and day out. And one of the things that he argues is the idols that we fashion or the spirituality that we've fashioned really proves hollow or inadequate whenever we face the difficulties and the tragedies of life. He writes this. He said, being spiritual does not do us any good. It works fairly well when you are healthy and have enough money to enjoy life And just want from your spirituality the feeling that all is well with the universe, particularly your corner of it. But it doesn't help you much when things go from bad to worse. The man wasting away from pancreatic cancer will get no help nor comfort from the spiritual, which will seem a lot less friendly and comforting when he feels pain morphine won't suppress. He has no one to beg for help, no one to ask for comfort, no one to be with him, no one to meet when he crosses from this world to the next. Friends, in the face of tragedy and the pain of life, the substitute idols that we often give ourselves to prove to at best be inadequate and at most to be hollow. 
When I started working in a church, I was a a 22-year-old kid. I didn't know what I was doing at all. But I got a job at a church, and I began uh, working there and doing all the fun things you get to do when you're uh, first working at a church. And one of those fun things that you get to do when you first work at a church is you get to preach the evening service, where not many people attend week in and week out. And I can remember one particular night where uh, I was tasked with uh, preaching at uh, the evening service. And the plan was for me to to meet the choir director before the evening service. We would kind of go through the service uh, and uh, then we we would engage in the service. And I remember this particular Sunday, the choir director didn't show up. We were a little bit concerned about what was going on, and we didn't have cell phones back then, so we didn't, that's how old I am, yes? We didn't have cell phones back then, so I had had nobody to call, so we just started the service. We just sang probably without the choir director, and I preached and went on, and the service went just fine. Later that evening, uh, we received a phone call, and that phone call told us that uh, the choir director, when she was driving back from a family vacation uh, in Delaware, was in a very serious car accident. And one of the things that we learned was that the choir director, her husband, and two out of her three children were killed in a car accident. Just a week later, we, uh, here I'm a 22-year-old kid, and we're having a, a funeral service at our church with four caskets laid out in front of the church congregation that day. Friends, no cleverly fashioned spirituality has answers in the face of such tragedy. No idol that we could give our allegiance or affection to can comfort us in moments like that. Only God, one who died and resurrected himself, can provide comfort and hope in the face of tragedies that life has on our path. No idol can save us in the face of judgment. No idol can save us in the face of death. No idol can stare in the face of tragedy and death and provide hope. Only Jesus Christ can do that for us. He is the only one that is deserving of our affection the only one that is deserving of our allegiance and the only one who is deserving of our worship.